You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm Erin Dietrich, and your host is Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Each week, we explore some aspect of the past, present, or future of intelligence and espionage. Please support the show for free by leaving us a five-star review or recommending the show to a friend. Coming up next on SpyCast. That was an awesome breakthrough that put ASIO on the map because this young, only five years old organization gets this wonderful coup, gets the KGB resident to defect with his, with his wife. From the short-lived supercontinent Pangaea, surrounded by a single ocean, to Gondwana, a smaller supercontinent that at one point included Australia, India, Africa, South America, and Antarctica, to the current distribution of landmasses on our planet, the evolution of what is now known as Australia is utterly and totally fascinating. The same is true of intelligence down under. It has strong British and American influences, yet geographically, their orientation is between the Indian and Pacific Oceans. And the country and its intelligence services are relatively new, but it's located in the world's oldest continent. To discuss this, this week's guest is John Blacksland, who's widely recognized as a leading expert in this area. John is the author of multiple books on Australian intelligence, including both official and unofficial histories, a professor at the Australian National University, and a former Australian Army intelligence officer. He's here in the U.S. for a few years based out of D.C., and he joined Andrew in the studio to discuss Australia's intelligence community, SIGINT in Australia during World War II, Australia's relationship with South Asia, the Pine Gap Facility, the implications of geography, and the power of collaboration. The original podcast on intelligence since 2006, We Are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So I don't even know really where to begin, John, because your uh, career and background is so rich and varied. So can you just tell us a little bit to start off, what brought you here to the States? I know you're going to be here for quite a bit of time. Yeah, um, thanks very much, Andrew. It's great to be with you on this wonderful SpyCast podcast. So I am uh, 
a professor at the Australian National University. I'm a professor of international security and intelligence studies, having written a few books on Australian intelligence, uh, particularly on our Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, ASIO, which is the uh, domestic counter-espionage, counter-intelligence organisation, and um, on signals intelligence and about the Australian Signals Directorate. But I'm a former military officer who was hired by ANU to um, help Professor David Horner write the three-volume history of ASIO. Um, so I jumped ship from the military after 28 years to join ANU. And 13 years later, I find myself a professor uh, being asked by the ANU to come to Washington to represent the Australian National University and Australian universities to foster research collaboration, uh, boost the profile of the Australian National University and Australian universities writ large, foster student exchanges, and to um, enhance ties between our two countries. And just to put Australian National University in context for our listeners, can you just give them a couple of sentences? I know that it's quite unique within the Australian context. Yeah, so it was established in 1946 as a research university for the federal government. And it's in Canberra, it's the capital city. It's in Canberra, the capital, which is a city that looks, and in some respects, a mini-me of DC. It was established with uh, under federal legislation in Australia. Australia, like the US, is a federation. Uh, all the other universities are under state or territory legislations, so they're not actually under federal jurisdiction. We're the only university that is, and it is therefore the only university with a national remit. So it is in that context that the Australian National University has a representative here in Washington to be in a position to foster ties, as I say, expand research collaboration, teaching exchanges, internships, and encourage young American students to spend a bit of time in Australia. And let's uh, give our listeners a little bit of Australian flavour just before we, we dig more into your career and your, your expertise and intelligence specifically. Where, where were you born and raised? So I wasn't actually born in Australia. I was born in Chile in South okay. America. My father was the vicar of Valparaiso. So, oh, wow. Um, it's a long story. Sounds like uh, a novel. Vector of <laughs> it may yet be one. <laughs> it's a, I'll, I'll tuck that thought away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to you on that. Um, yeah, but I uh, we moved uh, to Australia when I was about nine and uh, settled in Sydney. Uh, I'm a sixth. My parents are long time Australians, so I'm, I'm a sixth generation Australian of British descent. Grew up in Sydney, went to school there, and then I, um, for some reason, had uh, an enthusiasm for military history and a real appetite to join the army. And my parents couldn't make sense of it because the closest relative we had was a great uncle who died in the First World War, right? So why did I... I had I had to really can't explain it, why I wanted to join the army, but I did. Uh, so there. Okay. And your time in the army, what did you... Give our listeners a little bit more about the trajectory of your career and what you specialised in. So I went to the Royal Military College of Duntroon in Canberra and I did an arts degree and majored in history. And I, I'd actually thought about going to foreign affairs to join the Department of Foreign Affairs and trade. 
and they said to me, come back and see us when you've got a first-class honours degree. And by the time I had one of them, I was locked into a return of service obligation with the military, which actually worked out pretty darn well because mm-hmm. I had 28 years in the Army doing some very interesting things. Started out in signals, first year as a signals troop commander um, managing HF communications, then the second year right, managing a satellite terminal troop. That was that was my first entree into the arcane world of signals intelligence, and I was in charge of this downlink to the U.S. Defense Satellite Communication System. So I got all these code words thrown at me. I wasn't allowed to write any words down, and and I remember coming out of my 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 briefing uh, for, for on on SIGINT, and I asked the guy who briefed me. So, so what was that all about? And he and he handed me this book by the late Professor Des Ball, um, called A Suitable Piece of Real Estate. <laughs> and he said, read this and it'll help explain it. <laughs> okay. That's, that, I quite like that. Here's the book. <laughs> <laughs> so just, just for our listeners that aren't in the SIGIN world, could you just briefly break down a couple of those terms? So HF, uh, just yeah. give them a couple of sentences on that. And then sure. the satellite, you mentioned some terminology there. Could you just... Again, sure. just so our listeners are not left behind. Yeah, so um, it's a good point because I ended up writing my master's on a history of the Army Signals Corps and I had to do this, I had to explain these basic term, terms. So the radio frequency spectrum includes uh, sound and, and light waves that range in size from very, very slow and very, very low to very, very high. Uh, frequencies, you know, that are that are short. The the higher, the shorter the frequency. So the the more of them you can fit in a period of time, and and space. Um, and so the frequency spe- spectrum has been traditionally broken down to very low frequency VLF, low frequency LF, uh, high frequency HF, very high frequency VHF, which is what we have. Transistor radios was traditionally VHF. Um, uh, then UHF, which is, um, and, and then uh, SHF, super high frequency, and then you get into um, this part of the spectrum where it's considered more um, light and then into laser. So that's a very long spectrum, um, and you can use parts of that spectrum for different things. They, they have different physical properties that allow you to uh, either bounce a signal off the ionosphere, which is a layer uh, around the Earth's atmosphere that reflects uh, sound waves of different lengths. This is like shortwave radio that some of our listeners may know of. Shortwave radio, that's right, shortwave radio, which is uh, bouncing off the ionosphere and uh, reaching countries far and wide. Satellite communications operates at very, very small, very, very high end of the spectrum, and there's various uh, satellite types. Um, there's military and commercial grade satellites that have different parts of the frequency spectrum that once again are very, very high frequency and very, very specific. So you have to point the antenna directly at the satellite to get to get re- uh, reception or transmission. Mindful that there's transmission and reception. So transmissioning is when you're sending a signal and that requires the generation of electricity to amplify the signal from the end, from the transmitting device, and at the other end is the receiver that is has wires that are picking up the radio frequency f- fluctuations in the atmosphere, and it is then reading them as a 
at the device that the receiver reads those uh, transmitted signals, uh, radio frequency emanations, and translate them into a sonic message that a human can understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in the day, that was originally uh, with tele- with uh, Morse code and the telegraph and telegraphic signals, which originally you know was done via wire, a wire, and then via radio when the radio was invented. We, we talk about that in one of my books, Revealing Secrets. Um, about the, the transformative effect of uh, breakthroughs in communications that um, that have an enormous impact on on intelligence uh, eavesdropping and on uh, espionage writ large. I find just what you're discussing there, John. I find it so fascinating because for a lot of people, they just think when they think of spies, espionage, intelligence, they just think of the classic cloak and dagger mm. overhearing a conversation in a yep. cafe in Budapest or something like that. Yep. Uh, but it's kind of fascinating because basically the laws of physics are put into action to either try to gather information or protect information. So there's this whole way that the laws of physics, chemistry, mm. all the phenomena in the universe can potentially be leveraged to try to find stuff out, which yeah. is and you give an excellent explanation of it. It's, it's kind of fascinating. There's so much, we hear a lot about STEM and STEAM at the moment. I mean, yeah. there's so much of this that goes on in the world of intelligence that a lot of people don't think about. Yeah, that's right. And of course, in in the 1990s, we, we go through what I describe as the Copernican revolution of, or the industrial revolution that sees the world going from analog communications to digital communications. This is where we go from relying on radio frequency variations and, you know, fluct- trying to fluctuate the message over the radio frequency uh, of choice to a message that is all about ones and zeros. Literally a combination of ones and zeros to make up code that is then turned into picture or sound. And that is transformative. Our worlds are different as a result of the digital revolution and espionage is different because of the digital revolution. And what year was it that you joined the army, John? So I joined the army. I went to Duntroon in January uh, 1983, and I spent 28 years in the army. Uh, so I did a couple of years in the Signals Corps, then I went to, uh, did my time in the intelligence. I learned to speak Thai. Uh, over years, I ended up going to staff college in Thailand. I was an exchange officer to the Thai military. And uh, so that was, I got, it was an immersion course. So I came out of that kind of pretty much a simultaneous translator of Thai and English, which was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, along the way, I also was a brigade intelligence officer for the uh, international intervention in East Timor in 1999, which was a pinnacle experience, I have to say. After that, I came to Washington and I was the. Um, Australian Integrated Exchange Officer at the Defence Intelligence Agency in 2000 and 2001. So I was here for 9-11 um, and uh, smelt the smoke of uh, the Pentagon fires in my house down in Old Town, Alexandria, and the eerie silence of the quiet from the lack of fl- planes flying in. It was really quite a, you know, that was quite an inflection point for all of us, obviously. And I then, after that, I did a I went to Canada, did a PhD in war studies, and I um, wrote a, a, what's become a book with McGill Queen's University Press, Strategic Cousins, Canadian and Australian Expeditionary Forces and the British and American Empires. 
came back to Australia, I was posted to what was then the Defence Signals Directorate and thinking, why are they posting me there? Um, found out it was just an amazing experience uh, working with the signals intelligence and the, and the experts in cryptography and military signals intelligence was um, really, it, it, was a, it was a high, it was a real high. Extraordinary, really capable, bright, dedicated people uh, working on some very, very cool technology, um, including, that included several visits for me at uh, the Joint Defence Facility at Pine Gap. I was going to ask about that. Which is jaw-droppingly impressive. I can't go into too many details, but it was... That's it, okay, you know, I've seen the TV show. Yeah, you've seen it, so <laughs> you know it all. Hey? Um, it's interesting, successive political leaders in Australia, once they've been briefed in and once they've had a good chance to go and have a look at it, are unquestioning in their support of it. They realise how you, how how powerful, how useful, important it is for Australia, for the Australia-US alliance, and for global stability and security. It is a really an impressive piece of kit, if I can put it that way. So that was a lot of fun. After that, I was made um, uh, Chief of Joint Intelligence at our Joint Operations Command. Then I was made Defence Attaché to Thailand and Myanmar. So that was a very rewarding experience. And then as that was ending, I, I got rang up by one of my mentors, Professor David Horner himself, an old a Vietnam infantry vet uh, who'd written a number of military histories on high command in the Second World War and in the Australian Pacific Theatre. And he'd been commissioned to write a, a two-volume history of Asia, which became a three-volume history of Asia. He was approaching retirement and he said, John, I've I only want to write one of the volumes. I want someone else to do it, so I want you to apply for the job. So I did, um, and initially someone else got it, but then that person couldn't get a security clearance, and then I got the job. So, so yeah, fortune fortune prevailed. <laughs> I was very, very fortunate. So I did that for a few years, and along the way I developed a course with my co-author of Volume 3, Dr. Rhys Crawley, a course called Honeypots and Overcoats, Australian Intelligence in the World. And that's been a lot of fun teaching that. And I want to come back to that, but if we could just touch on a few things just so that we keep, our listeners are, are keeping up with us. So uh, Duntroon, the Royal Military College, that's the same as West Point? It's the Australian equivalent of West Point, yeah. Okay. And Pine Gap, just before we move on, mm. uh, Pine Gap's fascinating. Yep. And obviously I was joking about the TV show. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've spoke, everybody I've spoke to in Australian intelligence says that it's completely terrible, but... Um, yeah, tell the listeners about Pine Gap. So um, the Joint Defence Facility uh, was established in the mid-1960s uh, agreement uh, between the Australia and the United States uh, as a space research facility initially it was called. Uh, really it was about monitoring uh, ICBMs and uh, nuclear weapons testing in the Soviet Union uh, and to a certain extent in, across the Eurasian landmass. Um, so it was, it was a facility in the middle of Australia where you didn't get, have uh, enormous uh, electromagnetic sources of interference to passive listening to signals from space, from satellites or from other parts of the Earth. So incredibly useful. Um, and it's also, because it's in the heart of Australia, you can't plonk a Soviet, you know, inverted commas, fishing vessel with antennas 
to listen in to what's going on there. It's it's really hard to get to. And if you try and get there, it's pretty darned obvious that you're there. So it was very convenient, particularly in the early days when uh, you were looking at unencrypted downlink communications. That meant that the footprint in Alice Springs, just outside of Alice Springs, was perfect for that kind of uh, earth station to, uh, to, to be established. That then, as communications evolved, as, particularly as the digital revolution kicked in and satellite communications becomes the norm uh, and proliferates, you then see the purpose of Pine Gap expand exponentially. And Pine Gap is almost literally right in the middle of Australia, right? It's smack dab in the middle. Yeah, it's uh, just outside of this one city in the middle of Australia called Alice Springs, and it's there because of the springs, the, the water, it, you know, because really uh, the centre of Australia is very dry, very arid, uh, supports a very small population, mostly uh, uh, Aboriginal communities and uh, spread out very sparsely uh, because there's very little to sustain life out there. To help you digest this episode, here is a short interlude on the Copernican Revolution, which John mentions. Essentially, the Copernican Revolution changed how we thought about the universe, and more importantly, Earth's place within that universe. Previously, geocentrism was the order of the day. You may have heard the joke, how many narcissists does it take to screw in a light bulb? One, they stand still and let the Earth revolve around them. Well, geocentrism was the idea that the Earth is at the center of the universe and the sun revolves around the Earth. Nicholas Copernicus, a Polish astronomer and mathematician working in the 16th century, appended this. He theorized that the sun was at the center and Earth, with other planets, revolved around it. Now, as you can imagine, if you thought the world revolved around you and someone told you this was actually not the case, then hey, maybe you'd be a tad displeased. And this would turn out to be the case in the following century when Galileo provided empirical evidence through his scientific observations to prove and popularize Copernicus' theory. The powers that be in the Catholic Church found Galileo vehemently suspect of heresy, and he would be forced to recant his views and placed under house arrest for the rest of his life. Epor se moivre, and yet it moves, he is rumored to say. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. 
Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. I think it would be interesting just for a minute just to place Australia in a little bit more context for our listeners. So Australia, what size is the population? So the Australia is the size of continental United States. So the physical size. Physical size of the That's huge. It's huge. But there's no Mississippi River Delta in the middle, you know. It's it just it's a just a desert in the middle. That's the problem. So it can't sustain a big population base. Going back to Dirk Hartog and the Dutch explorers of the 1600s, they came and they, they hit the West Coast um, and they thought, well, this is just, there's nothing here, right? It's just desert. Um, so they didn't stay. They didn't hang around. And it was only when uh, James Cook explored the East Coast that he realised that, um, well, this is actually pretty fertile, pretty abundant, and you could actually settle here. Of course, Aboriginals, had, people had been there for tens of thousands of years, but they had not established um, towns or cities. Their, their presence was to a Western eye from the 1700s, uh, primitive and not very, not permanent, it appeared. So they were, well, as you know, I mean, this, this is a very controversial part of Australian sure. history, uh, much like in other settler uh, uh, countries, New York countries like Canada, the United States and New Zealand and beyond. Hmm. Wow. So the size of the United States, that's, that's huge. And the population... Oh, population, 20, 25 and a half million. So imagine the states with 25 and a half million. Yes. That's, that's this crazy. Is, yeah, it's tiny. Um, it's really, you know, uh, what, half the population of California? Um, it's just, it's small. And yet we sit upon um, a land of plenty. You know, this is land rich with uranium, iron ore, uh, a lot of rare earths, uh, oil and gas... Uh, Great wheat, wine. Uh, awesome wine. <laughs> uh, wheat, sheep, cattle. Uh, you know, there's a great Australian author, Donald Horn, wrote a book called The Lucky Country. Uh, and he was he was tongue-in-cheek in his, it was sarcastic in his, in his title, but there's a truth to what he was saying. That So let's, let's just go, just really briefly, John, I just wanted to take a brief detour to to get people that are not from Australia to be able to have an imaginary about the situation there, what it's like to be located there, the neighbourhood, the region and so forth. So let's just do a around-the-clock type survey yeah, of yeah. Australia and talk about yeah, the region, if sure. you don't mind. So one of the things I like to talk about with my students is the the dichotomy between our history and our geography. So we're largely a transplanted Anglo-European community, now much more multicultural than ever, but we're sitting on the edge of Asia. 
So we actually struggle with reconciling that dialectic, uh, who we are and where we are. Uh, so, as I say, increasingly multicultural with more and more people from Asia, but we have a huge migrant community from uh, almost a million from South Asia or about a million from uh, the China countries, uh, group that Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong, uh, Macau, mainland China, uh, people identified as Chinese, ethnically Chinese, there's more than a million, and of the, of the 25 million. And then there's a large number who are from, uh, obviously overwhelmingly from the British Isles, but increasingly large numbers from South Europe, Italy, Greece, um, uh, some in, now increasingly from Africa, Latin America and elsewhere, large uh, migrant communities from Southeast Asia. So if you group the Southeast Asians, about a million of them as well. So Australia hangs, I, I kind of use in my lectures a map of Australia centred on Darwin, but spun 45 degrees so you get the sense of Australia hanging off Asia and the idea of the Indo-Pacific space that Australia inhabits. So we're on the edge of Asia. We're between the Indian and Pacific Oceans. We have Antarctica to our south. New Zealand to our southeast, the Pacific Islands to our east. The United States is a long, long way away across the Pacific to the northeast. In our immediate neighbourhood, we have Indonesia, which is a country 10 times Australia's population, primarily uh, Muslim, um, a, a country, a very rambunctious, lively, growing economy that is broadly well disposed to Australia, um, that... Uh, we, but we're very, very different cultures. Next to that is Papua New Guinea, which uh, after the First World War was mandated to Australia. As so we managed it as a colony until independence in 1975 after the Second World War. Then there's all the Pacific Islands, many of which are former British colonies that were never colonised by Australia, but because they're kind of Anglospheric, they gravitate towards Australia. So they have common law they operate in English when they're not using native languages. What are a couple of those islands? Fiji, uh, Tonga. Um, uh, they're the two ones that immediately okay. spring okay. to mind. Um, but there's there's the Pacific Islands for them. There's a dozen countries in that space, including some of the French colonies as well. So New Caledonia, French Polynesia, Tahiti. I've always wanted to go to all of those islands. I bet they're beautiful. They are beautiful. Uh, they're hot and steamy as well. Okay. <laughs> Beyond that, you've got... Um, the five power defence arrangement countries, Malaysia and Singapore, former part of the British Empire that Australia obviously invested in in defending in the Second World War, only to get captured by the Japanese and then sent up to the Thai Burma Railway to build the, the infamous Death Railway. Singapore and Malaysia are very important partners of Australia, trade partners, security partners, five power defence arrangement, which is the mechanism that was established after Britain's withdrawal from east of Suez was a kind of a residual guarantee to Malaysia and Singapore that the Brits would stay engaged, along with Australia and New Zealand. And that's hence the FPDF five power defence arrangement. And that still exists? That still exists. Ironically enough, it was set up in part to assure Malaysia and Singapore that they would be defended against any repeat incursion for, or confrontasi from Indonesia, because in the mid-60s, Indonesia had threatened uh existentially threatened Malaysia and Singapore. That um, That's really not the case anymore, but the utility of those five countries still talking to each other, practising together, has meant that no one's wanted to turn it off. So it still still exists, it still works. 
let's uh, pivot back to your research, John. So this has been really fascinating and I feel like I've got a, a much better hand, handle on things and I hope our listeners think that too. So these books on ASIO, you mentioned some of your other books. I think you're being a little bit coy saying I've written a couple of books. Uh, it's more than a couple. <laughs> Tell the listeners about some of the things that you've researched, some of the things that you found out, uh, what gets you up out of bed in the morning and so forth. So let's start with ASIO. You mentioned that that's Australia's MI5 or FBI yeah. sort yeah. of, uh, but not quite. Tell us a little bit more about your research. So the the project, the ASIO project, um, was kicked off after Britain's MI5 history was commissioned. So there was a sense that, well, Australia should do that too. And of course, mindful that, uh, ASIO was very much, its creation was shaped by the work of MI5 leaders who were instrumental in the late 1940s, helping um, the Australian government recognise that it needed to reform its domestic security intelligence apparatus because they were, there was a nest of spies operating in that space. It was not an organisation in which the government had confidence. So there's a group of people who'd been operating um, in the Second World War who are uh, communist sympathisers, if not and if not communist party members, who had been passing stuff to the Soviet embassy, and uh, Sigint actually picked up from the Soviet embassy in Canberra, and were reporting back to Harbin, where the Russians had a post in occupied China, where they were passing messages to the Japanese, messages that were proving helpful to the Japanese in extending, uh, in in fighting against the Allies, against us in the Pacific. And um, But, of course, back then, people were, we forget that there was a, a degree of sympathy towards the Soviet Union because they, they were our allies. And that, that kind of uh, sympathy and appreciation for the work of the Soviets in defeating Nazism lingered after the war, even though when the Cold War uh, really kicked in, there was a sense in some circles that, look, this was a mistake allowing the Cold War to happen and that we just needed to show goodwill and that, you know, everything would be okay, so we need to keep working with the Soviets, not against them. And it's in that context that the Americans and, uh, were communicating to the Brits. They said, guys, we're going to have to cut off the Australians. And when Australia was cut off, we were downgraded. Uh, our access after the Second World War, when we, we were trusted intimately, was, was wound right back. Um, but nobody wanted to reveal uh, the source, which was the Venona decrypts. The Venona decrypts being these Soviet diplomatic cables that had been decoded, decrypted, um, because of this quirk in history. Now, this is probably worth just explaining. Yeah, to the, yeah, to I think this would be good because there's a bit of convolution, but it's a yeah. fascinating story. Well, it, it, and it comes out in both the history of ASIO uh, that I was in the project that I was on on that one, but also on the history of, uh, of signals intelligence in Australia. So, and even things like the Cambridge Five, all the Rosenberg all, spiring. Exactly, yeah. it's all linked. So in the 1920s and 30s, um, uh, British intelligence has some remarkable successes against Soviet uh, diplomatic traffic. And, uh, you know, um, foolhardy British uh, politicians boasted of their success in Parliament. Um, and this led to the Soviets recognising that um, machine... Uh, generated code was not workable. They needed to go to one-time pads. And after that point on, Soviet diplomatic traffic was virtually unreadable. Unless you could get a copy of the one-time pads through Humint, usually, 
you struggle to have any success in decrypting um, because to decrypt, this gets to some of the points I talk about in, in my book, Revealing Secrets, um, you need kind of some kind of pattern that you can compare and contrast with other messages. To with see. a one-time pattern, there's no pattern. There's no pattern. In this interlude, I'll take a very brief moment to tell you a little bit about British Australia's surprisingly spy-related origins. You may have heard of James Cook's very famous Endeavour voyage of 1768. It was a maritime mission originally commissioned by the Society of London as a strictly scientific exploration. The idea was to circumvent the southern hemisphere of Earth to collect scientific data like plant species. When word spread of this epic journey, the Royal Navy became interested. But they weren't too interested in plants. However, their intentions lied in a much more clandestine camp. Remember, British colonialism was nearing its peak in the late 18th century. The Crown was intent on building its empire and an in-depth exploration of previously uncharted territory with the potential for new trade and new navigation routes was music to King George's ears. And so, the Royal Navy and the Royal Society of London decided to collaborate, but to keep their colonial intentions a secret, conveniently hidden behind the previously mentioned idea that the voyage set off with strictly educational goals. The crew's first mission was to make it to Tahiti to observe the transit of Venus. After that, Cook's instructions for the journey from the Navy read, and I quote, You are to put to the sea without loss of time and carry into execution the additional instructions contained in the enclosed, sealed packet. As you may imagine, the directions in the secret enclosed packet read something along the lines of, should you stumble upon the Great South Land, as it was called, claim it as England's. In the end, the voyage was a smashing success on both fronts. The botanists on board increased the number of plant species known to Western science by 10%. And on August 22nd, 1770, on the northernmost tip of Queensland, James Cook declared the continent we now know as Australia under the rule of the crown. What happened, though, in 1941 when the, so when the Soviets were really hard-pressed and the nuts who were coming in on Moscow, they ran out of one-time pads, so they made duplicates. And those sets of duplicates were used from 1942 to 1948. And in that time, that period of duplication allowed just a sliver of light through for the two copies to be compared and contrasted to then be able to look for patterns, look for any indications. So to do that, you would use a couple of things. One is, um, so in English and French, for instance, the letters T and E uh, are the most frequent letters. So you look for frequency. Uh, um, that's one thing. You would also look for the signatures at the start or at the end of a message, which are almost invariably hail fellow well met type greeting and salutations at the end, right? So like for Enigma, quite often they close with Heil Hitler. Big bingo, yeah. The same kind of 
phenomenon um, uh, would give you a lead to how to start unpicking the thread of the code of the one-time pad that was duplicated. And uh, people uh, in Arlington Hall, the, the precursor of uh, the National Security Agency and then NSA subsequently spent decades, literally decades until about 1980, working on this unpacking the, the this one-time pad that had only been used from 1942 to 1948. But that window, it provided uh, incredible exposure of Soviet um, uh, espionage behind lines in Western countries. The breadth and depth of the penetrations and the networks yep, and so yep. forth. So it gave a lot of hints and so it helped uh, in unravelling a, a range of networks of spies, including in Australia. And that's the one I, I write about and David Horner writes about. Um, that's what contributed to the formation of ASIO because while in the Second World War, we had with uh, Ultra and the uh, reading of the Japanese Purple, uh, we had, which are these rotor, you know, these kind of electromechanical uh, encryption devices with rotors that with each the, with alphanumeric wheels. That Enigma is the classic Enigma example. Enigma is a classic example. We don't actually have a copy of a purple machine left because between the declaration of surrender and the arrival of the Americans to take the surrender, the Japanese destroyed every last copy of their purple machine. There are none known to exist that I've heard of. And there are no examples, unlike Enigmas, which are in museums. There's one here in the Spy Museum. Two. Two. two here. <laughs> there you go. So, but, you know, because they were captured after the war, right, um, purples were not caught. They were just destroyed. Uh, and in part because when Japan surrendered, you physically had to get to Japan, right, whereas when Japan surrendered, the Allies were there. There was nowhere for the Germans to hide. Um, uh, so that was a big difference. But that uh, electromechanical device um, provided, and, and this is of, uh, which Australians were using, monitoring Japanese diplomatic traffic, were picking up signals that they were getting messages from the Soviets. That was in 1944. Venona also was picking up these signs, but no Australian was given access to Venona. This was strictly held by the Americans with some Brits in the loop. And Venona was the code name to this project on deciphering this copied one-time pad that the Soviets used from 42 to 48. So it wasn't just one copied one-time pad, it was a series of copied one-time pads. Yeah, yeah and access to that and then correlating, figuring out which one to correlate it to and trial and error, you know, matching and, and cross-patching. So th this idea of the frequency principle um, and, you know, I've got this idea of what we call uh, uh, alphabetic substitution and polyalphabetic substitution, which is essentially what electromechanical um, devices were operating on. So you swap a letter for another letter and then you swap it again and then you swap it again. That's kind of, that's what Enigma did. A polyalphabetic substitution, which is an old concept going back to Middle Ages, cleverly hiding a message behind swapped letters. Uh -huh. um, that enabled us to access the the ultra and the purple traffic, but it didn't give us access to the Venona traffic. The Venona stuff happened separately, and that's what continued after the war, and that's what worried the Americans about trusting Australia, which led to 
Ben Chifley, the Australian Prime Minister, being approached by the British Prime Minister to, mate, start a new organisation, dump the old one, the Commonwealth Investigation Service, start a new one, which is like MI5. So he sent out a couple of people, Sir Percy Sillitoe, um, um, sent out by Clement Adley to go and work with Australia to help form an Australian security intelligence organisation. Um, so they couldn't call it the Australian Security Service. <laughs> I can see why. <laughs> that acronym was not going to work. Right? <laughs> um, even though some people might have thought that that was appropriate, the, the practitioners were not going to... that was, So they had to come up with another name. <laughs> so ASIO it became, um, and that's the one that... Uh, was then validated a few years later with uh, when the, the Vladimir and Evdokia Petrov de- defected in 1954. And that was the pièce de résistance, if you like. That was an awesome breakthrough that put ASIO on the map because this young, only five years old organisation gets this wonderful coup, gets the um, KGB uh, a resident to defect with his, with, his, uh, with his wife. Was he a walk-in? Um, it's a long story, and uh, David Horner writes it up beautifully in his first volume on on the spy catchers, uh, which is a riff off a little bit off uh, Peter Wright's book, the spy, a spy catcher. But it was about this is the why Asia was set up to catch the nest of spies, right? And this guy um, Vladimir Petrov is um, recruited by um, a a Michael Bieloguski, who is a a slightly unsavoury Polish migrant um, doctor involved in unethical, at the time, practices on women who had, uh, you know, kids that didn't want to keep, right? He was also a fast drinker and he was a big fan of the red light district in Sydney called King's Cross, to which he introduced Vladimir Petrov. And they went and had a rollicking good time together, became fast mates, and he... On the cusp of, this is when Sir Charles Spry, the head of ASIO, is disgusted by this man's ethics and his behaviour. He's on the point of firing him as an ASIO agent, only to find out he's about to bring in the best the best catch of the decade, right? So he's an ASIO agent, not an ASIO officer? Not, no, he's an ASIO agent. So he's, a, he's recruited by an ASIO officer as a paid agent for ASIO to, to, to recruit Vladimir Petrov. Uh, so Petrov defects, and then uh, his wife is um, caught by surprise. She is detained by the Soviet embassy, then flown out of Canberra. And uh, back then, you had to refuel in Darwin. At Darwin, she is um, given the phone to her husband, who says, "Darling, stay. It's much better here." And uh, so she decides to stay. And um, and there's a wonderful couple of photos in David's book on these thuggish Soviet officers manhandling Evdokia at the airport next to the plane. It's a great photo. Um, but what we hadn't realised was that Evdokia was the, she was the creme de la creme because she was the cryptologist. She had, Bingo. she was gold, right? So she helped uh, uh, networks uh, of uh, counter-espionage activity in many, many Western countries for years thereafter. People came and supped at her feet and learned about um, vulnerabilities and who was who in the zoo in, in there and networks. So they they were the gift that kept on giving. 
um, for Western intelligence for years, and that put ASIO on the map, as I say. Okay, wow. And just a couple of things you mentioned there I'd like to pick up on, John. So Purple's diplomat, Japanese diplomatic traffic, Correct. as opposed to GN25, which is Japanese naval traffic in the Pacific during the Second World War. So the the, the Japanese have a series of different uh, uh, code protocols and encoding devices, but uh, the Purple is the, is the principal uh, high-level one, yeah. Um, JN25 had been broken uh, by um, uh, cryptographers, including Eric Nave, who was uh, an Australian seconded to the Royal Navy, working out of Hong Kong for a while, um, who then came back to Australia and was formative in shaping the uh, Pacific War signals intelligence enterprise in Australia. Um, and um, the JN25, ironically enough, the Japanese Imperial Japanese Navy prided itself on its uh, cryptographic um, water tightness. They thought they were beyond reproach and they thought the army was the weak link. In fact, it was the other way around. The army was very difficult to crack. Um, and there was a couple of instances there which are about right about in Revealing Secrets, um, the book that came out just a few months ago with Claire Berg and my colleague, that um, uh, we caught, we, we found uh, these code books that... Uh, that had been uh, uh, in water, they'd been abandoned, um, as waterlogged, um, and other ones that had been burnt, but that you could uh, still see the image of if carefully treated, carefully managed. Um, and that was then able to be transcribed and used to unpick the Japanese army codes, the water transport codes, actually. But they were about land force operations, and that then gave enormous uh, leads into... Uh, Japanese plans and, and, and concepts that uh, could be exploited for operational purposes. I don't have time to go into it fully, but I find Gen 25 so fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, the way that it would be a code book. So say say a, a, a frigate is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 mm, uh, mm. in the code book, and then every term there's a series of numbers in the code book, but then what they would do is they would have these books of supposedly randomly generated numbers, mm. additive book, and then they would add numbers on top. So, so basically there's another layer of obfuscation that you have to try to Unpick. peel away. And it, yep. is, it is kind of ingenious, but then when you think about the size of the Pacific and the distribution of the code books and, and the, the way that you can't change them particularly frequently and so forth, I, I think that GN25 and Purple are just such a fascinating way to understand I know I'm preaching to the converted. <laughs> Such a fascinating way to understand the Second World War, I Absolutely. think. Absolutely. No, I completely agree. Yeah. The other thing that I was going to say just before we wrap up, so um, you mentioned your book, Revealing Secrets. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that? How so, can our listeners get hold of it? So it's available on Amazon. Um, it's with a, an Australian publisher, but it's on Kindle and Amazon uh, for purchase. Uh, it is uh, called Revealing Secrets and Unofficial History of Australian Signals Intelligence and the Advent of Cyber. So what Claire and I, Claire Bergen and I do with that book is we take a broad view on the story of cryptography going back to ancient times and we explain the evolution and the uh, adaptation of concepts of how you hide messages, how that works. And then we follow the, the, the strands through... US cryptographic history 
uh, and British cryptographic history to see how they then shape Australian uh, cryptographic organisational concepts wow. um, and feed into the uh, architecture that emerges in the Second World War in Australia. And that is the precursor of the post-Second World War architecture, um, which lasts, it's been going for 81 years, you know, since Central Bureau was established in March 1942. And, and just to be clear for our listeners, the current primary Signals Intelligence Organisation is the Australian Signals Directorate. Australian Signals Directorate, yeah. So the, the Australian Signals Directorate um, used to be, it was started out after the Second World War as the Defence Signals Bureau, deliberately named to deflect attention from its real purpose. Um, but 80 years later, um, the Australian Signals Directorate, as it's become now, is a much more out and proud organisation in large part because the cyber revolution has placed demands on these hoodie-wearing, basement-dwelling, introverted geeks, <laughs> right, to actually man or operate a shop front for the nation. Um, and this echoes phenomena across many Western countries, particularly in the Five Eyes world, where the cyber enterprises for the nation have become the hearth of cybersecurity expertise, in part because of the uh, experience going back to the Second World War, the electromechanical computers, the bombs, the, the devices that unpicked the, the Enigma and the Purple Machine, the IBMs that with the, with the punch cards. These are all the antecedents of what, when the, what happened when we get Cray computers, we get the digital revolution, and the expertise that's residing in the SIGINT space is the expertise you need in computing to help a nation defend itself against state-based threats and corporate actors, malevolent corporate and uh, non-state actors. And just, just finally, John, so if any of our listeners in the American community the mm. Uh, would like to communicate with you or meet up with you for yeah. a coffee or online, how do they get in touch with you? So I'm easy to get. I'm uh, here in the US, but my email address is uh, just john.blacksland at anu.edu.au. And I'm, uh, and as I say, I teach Honeypots and Overcoats, Australian Intelligence in the World, which is, I teach that as an undergrade course. I teach a master's, uh, a postgraduate course as well on this very similar topic. And, um, I'm here based in DC to foster research collaboration between Australian universities and their American North American counterparts uh, to encourage student exchanges, to um, encourage uh, teaching and uh, related collaboration and to just deepen the ties between um, our tertiary institutions and uh, North American ones. Well, it's been a pleasure to speak to you and uh, to be continued. Andrew, great to be with you. Thanks for having me on your program. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. On March 1st, the Spy Museum will be opening its first ever special exhibit, Bond in Motion. The exhibit features 17 vehicles from the James Bond movie franchise, 
It's an experience I can promise you, you won't want to miss. To brush up on your 007 knowledge, next week we'll re-release a Bond special from last year with our in-house expert, Alexis Albion. Grab yourself a martini, tune in, and hopefully we'll see you in March. If you go to our page, thecyberwire.com forward slash podcasts forward slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. I'm Aaron Dietrich, and your host is Dr. Andrew Hammond. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Vaughn III, Emily Coletta, Emily Renz, Afua Anakwa, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, and Jen Ivan. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artifacts, the International Spy Museum.